Welcome to Trowadron Legends and Lore. Episode 34, Bethra and Lyra. Well, hello and welcome to another exciting adventure that is the season podcast, season three podcast series here for Trollodern Legends and Lore. I'm Chad Corey, and we're going to be continuing where we left off with the last episode that is talking more about the fiendish princes. In particular, we're going to be looking at some devilish princesses today, Bethra and Lyra. I'll get to them in just a second. I just wanted to reiterate again, if you had any questions, comments, things that uh, you wanted to share, or uh, just pass along where you're getting this information, where you're getting this podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. And you can do so by sending me an email at uh, lore, that's L-O-R-E, at chadcorey.com. That's C-H-A-D-C-O-R-R-I-E.com. And I also want to make you aware that there is a website for the world of Trollodron. I don't always promote that, probably like I should. But you can go to Trollodron.com, and that's T-R-A-L-O-D-R-E-N.com. And there you'll find more information about what we're talking about today. And we get into some uh, expanded information on the world setting, the history, and other things that will be, I call it the ever-expanding update on the website, because basically... I don't want to lock myself into saying this is the finite form the website's going to take, but I want to have some flexibility and freedom to put in more information and updates as I'm able to do so. Obviously, the caveat I always share, like I do with this podcast in particular, is I can't always share everything I want to share. I have a lot of stuff I just really would like to put on there and make available for people, but a lot of it is spoiler-related. A lot of it has things that have yet to be developed or are kind of hidden clues that are in future books or in current books, and so I don't want to kind of put too much out there, let my smoke out of the bottle, so to speak, and ruin the experience for people, and also kind of hinder my ability to increase and share stuff in a more timely and efficient manner in the future. But you can certainly take advantage of that, and there should be a Facebook page and a Instagram page and a Twitter page, I believe, for Trollodon as well. I don't often, unfortunately, I'm trying to get better at doing that, updating information and sharing things on that, those resources as well. But if you want to be kind of stand the know on that as well, do take advantage of that. And I will do my best to let people know when things are updated, when things are shared, and pass on some fun stuff and goodies that might not necessarily be available on my regular social channels or website. So, okay. So I think that's kind of enough of the uh, PSA there. Let's get into Bethra. Now, Bethra is one of the five original devilish princes or princesses, we're saying today, who found their way to Trollodon during the close of the Titanic Age. And those who worship her uh, are called Bethrians, kind of a fun name there, right? And they worship her as kind of getting the idea that she's promising them power and riches and influence in the world. For those who make up her cult, they infiltrate places of power, rule, and influence in the given region. Here they make sure Bethra's agenda is carried out to the letter. This means her followers can be in courts and kingdoms as rulers of independent cities, part of or head of trade guilds, and the like. Wherever there is a concentrated concentration of power and wealth and influence over the region or population, it's a prime candidate for infiltration. And given this unique nature of the culture, followers are often 
people to place power or influence themselves or those who are climbing the social ladder to attain those things. And like many cults and many uh, fiendish princes we've talked about so far, she doesn't have any really uh, sacred text or anything like that that people will follow. She does have a holy symbol, which is a three-pointed white crown, and the crown is rather stylized with two smaller points and a larger central point between them, and it's simply called the white crown. And it's made on alabaster, white marble, or quartz, or other white stone pendants and attached to a white cord. And when used in other displays, which is rare, the crown is white and the background is usually a deep purple or a black. And basically, as I alluded to, her, her goal and function is getting power and influence in, in the world and using people to infiltrate. We'll talk a little bit more about that, the, the functionality of her cult, in just a moment. But some of her basic tenets which, again, she doesn't have any scriptures or anything, but some of her basic tenets that some of the cults have are as follows. He who steers the rudder rules the entire ship. Riches bring power, and power allows command. Sentiment and morality are dross of the soul. There is only one command to which total service is required. So it sounds like a really interesting (laughs) mindset, obviously, for those that follow after her. Obviously, she's not a big fan with people that are into law and order in a traditional sense, people like Ganatar Othone, or just people that have scribed to the traditional sense of law and order or normal functionality of a government or region or people. And so she has some issues with that because obviously this cult is designed to infiltrate, overthrow, or influence things in such a way to their own benefit and machinations. Uh, others who learn of them are also find them disfavorable because they're seen as kind of in a negative light power-hungry, grabby, manipulative, you know, that kind of thing, which doesn't often sit well with with many people in general. And just kind of a fun little tidbit here. Her followers, when they gather, they're to wear white robes and the the white crown. Priests wear long white gloves and white hooded cloaks, and they keep the hoods drawn. We'll gather, of course, a similar thing to, you know, hide their identities and also add another layer of protection to those that are in the cult or organization. In times of special or high ceremony, they also wear a white half mask that covers their face from the nose up, leaving everything from the nose down exposed. Again, there's a lot of secrecy in these cults that that is designed to keep the people, like I said, protected and the ultimate goals and objectives of the the cult itself a little bit more uh, obscured except for the higher echelons of people. So now let's talk about Bethra herself. She her title is the Pale Princess. And like many of her fellow fiendish princes and princesses, she stands 15 feet tall. She has pink eyes with white hair and pale white flesh. She resembles basically a albino titaness with pale white flesh and pink eyes. Her white hair is kept in dreadlocks that fall to her middle back. She enjoys wearing white sleeveless full-length gowns, these with matching white leather sandals. The overall impression is one of great elegance. On her hands, she wears gold rings attached to her golden bracelets by means of some thin golden chains. This is the extent of her adornment. And when it comes to weapons, she doesn't really wear any armor, depending on her own natural abilities and the cosmic element of evil to help her defense and attacks. And she doesn't really carry any weapons as well. As far as her court goes, she makes her home in the first level of the abyss in the mountain fortress of Vandrin. Here she rules over and other surrounding areas with a calculating but strong hand. 
She keeps a force of about 4,000 devils and assorted abysmal incarnates, along with three devilish lords and seven greater devils. Of late, she, is, she also entertains a lord of evil named Keldon, who has defected from his people and is looking to learn what he can from the fiends, from any perceived gain he can tap into and apply to himself for future glory and greatness. For now, Bethra allows him to share her bed, using him for what she, he can, she can, excuse me, get out of him for knowledge of the lords of evil for whom she has a potential tool she can exploit for her own benefit. Uh, she maintains her power in place by trading routes and power deals with others around the area while keeping her own will enforced upon the local population. And while there have been rebellions in times past, they have been swiftly put down and very thought of, and the very thought of another following on its heels put to rest in graves and trapped spirits of those who were killed. She is also interested in tapping into more of her natural abilities and powers, becoming more of a divinity than she presently is. Bethra has give, also been given the creation of the Morka on Trollod, and that's kind of her claim to fame. And so that's one of the things that she's been able to contribute. I don't really think she has a real strong connection to them necessarily on the planet. They're more or less altered animals or, or slightly supernatural beasts, if you want to call them that. So she doesn't really see a necessary purpose or direction for them right now. She might check in once in a very great while to see if they still exist or what's going on, but there is no ultimate plan as far as, as far as we can see or understand, or at least the sages and, and uh, people that study that kind of thing can figure out in general. As far as her cult goes, Bethra uses her cults and Trollodron as networks to infiltrate and control aspects of power and control over the general region and population. With this control, she, she searches for anything that might help her increase in her own personal goals and agendas, while ruling, as it were, through her vessels towards her own various ends. In many cases, this means enriching and empowering herself with knowledge and riches and servants she can use to fund her plans across the abyss and Trollodron. She is not really a bloody deity to her worshippers, instead seeking them to pledge their lives and resources at her command. This has allowed her cult to become rich, rather rich and have the means to do what it needs to do in various times past. It also isn't unknown for her to call upon her followers to commit affairs or sire various offspring to use as she wills. She has even called upon followers in times past to bring about financial ruin to engender desired challenges and ends that push her larger plans and goals forward. As with all cults, however, nothing lasts forever. And while they have lasted longer than most given their connections and resources, they often are found out over time and exposed and destroyed. The priests of Ganatar are exceptionally hateful of her cult since it cuts right into the very nature of what they see about to promote. Athone has her own clashes with her cult as well, over the years with many of her priests hating the cult for the very same reason as Ganatar. So that is kind of the summary of the nutshell summary, shall we say, of Bethra. Again, probably not one of the more evil, I'm going to use the term lightly, uh, versions of fiendish personalities, shall we say, infiltrating or influencing Trollodrum, but she is still corruptive and deceptive and destructive in her own way, as you've just heard. So now let's transition into Lyra, the second princess we're covering today. Lyra's title is the Golden Lady, and we'll find out why in just a second. She basically resembles a titaness with, like we said, gold skin, close-cropped red hair, purple eyes, and pointed ears. A cluster of small ivory horns are around on, and on each elbow, while a barbed prehensile tail extends some three feet behind her. 
She always wears luxurious-looking saris, these varying in color and design, and she has plenty of tall sandals she makes use of in various colors and design as well. She also enjoys necklaces and bracelets. When it comes time for combat, Laura uses two katars, using both at once, and sometimes even against two different opponents at once. Her tail is also used in fighting, sometimes wrapping around wrists or throats or jabbing at foes for added impact. Even though the barbed part of her tail isn't poisoned, it can still cause some pain. And for armor, she prefers a brigadine shirt with a half-open face helmet. Far as her court goes, Lyra is a rather decadent, devilish princess who enjoys flaunting her power and wealth as well as dark wisdom and cunning. Her city of Shanra is awash with gold, and the inner walls and the main walls are covered with it. Her, pro- her own private palace has walls covered in gold, silver, platinum, and other precious metals. Semi-precious stones are embedded into the ramparts, and all her banners are cloth of gold. The city itself is known for its beauty. There are manicure walkway- walkways and gardens, and great fountains and ponds as well. It is something akin to what one might find in paradise, but that beauty is only skin deep. Deep in the bowels of her palace, Lyra delights in the torture of other beings. She delights in the pain and suffering of others, always eager to learn how she can cause more and have it last longer in the process. She also uses it for ways to turn other fiends toward her or against their masters, using them as spies to infiltrate other demonic and devilish princes and princesses' realms for her own gain and increase as well as protection of her own territories. She is served by seven devilish lords and six greater devils, with about 5,000 devils and devil-inclined in Bismal incarnates. Her followers are called Lyrinians, and they have no, again, no holy scripture or text that they follow, but they have some basic tenets, which are as follows. In another's misery, you can find your joy. In all pain, there is profit. Mercy is for the weak, compassion for fools. Life is cheap, profit where you can. Her holy symbol is called the black coil, and it's a coiled black spiked whip. It is always portrayed in black, and on all occasions where it is displayed on banners and the like, the background is gold. Otherwise, the symbol is carved into two-inch disc pendants made of lead or other baser metals, which are attached to a leather or cloth cord. And it has also been known to be tattooed or branded on victims in times past as part of their torment and sign of service to Lyra. Basically, as far as the dress goes, um, just for some fun little tidbits here, they wear steel gray robes and with the black coil, of course, worn for their holy symbol. Priests are to wear a special golden hood that covers, uh, actually flows into a stole, and the black coil is considered embroidered at the ends of each of their stole as well. So that's pretty much kind of the extent of the the, the basic structure and worship of the religion as far as what her cult does and what they're about. She tends to create or allow untrodden a cult that focuses mainly on two things, enriching herself and spreading misery and pain. To that end, she calls upon her followers to kidnap people, to make them into slaves and victims for all sorts of sadistic torture. The torture is to make people renounce the gods and former beliefs and turn to Lyra, upon which they are killed and sent to her in the abyss as slaves and eternal victims to torment. The slaves are used to help generate money to use on other ventures and even find its way back to her through various means and schemes. If her followers please her, they are rewarded with riches and secrets into new insight 
into pain and torture they can share and use on their next victims. They also get a greater sense of darker insights into things not normally known or hidden from the common reality. The higher, more powerful knowledge is more reserved for the priests who gain new access to dark divine power and other boons. Naturally, the light gods are not too keen on her cults and seek to dispose them wherever encountered. Athone and Asor in particular take special note since she traffics in the suffering and taking of life as well as seeks to profit off of it as well. The gray gods aren't entirely neutral on the matter either, but unlike the dark gods, tend to get involved when it starts to interfere with their own actions and interests. And I think that it was just kind of, again, just sharing a little thumbnail of what these people or cults are about. So you get kind of a taste from, again, I can't go into super great detail about everything because I don't want to ruin some surprises like I keep saying in future, future works. And yes, you will get some future stuff in the future here. I don't want to keep saying stuff but nothing materializes, but do rest assured things are coming and things are being produced. And I'll probably be able to share some more stuff in the hopefully not too distant future about different things as well. But with that, I'm going to wrap up this particular episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next episode, episode 35, we're going to finish up this whole uh, introduction, not introduction, whole exploration of the divine pantheon and all the divinities that are of note and, and cults and things in the world. Hopefully you'll find it of interest as we'll be talking about some more major players that have or will be showing up in the upcoming stories here as well. Thanks for listening. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.